Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Daniel Paris, host of the New Books and Finance channel, a channel of the New Books Network. My guest this afternoon is Professor Jim O'Toole, Emeritus Professor of Business at the University of Southern California and the author of the just published Enlightened Capitalist, Cautionary Tales of Business Pioneers Who Tried to Do Good well, who tried to do well by doing good. It was just published by Harper Business in 2019. Jim, welcome. Thank you for having me on. Uh, this is a very interesting book. It's a long book, but it's it's really a, a page turner of the uh, uh, narrating the efforts, a series of individuals over several centuries who have taken the you know the basic model of Western capitalism, maybe not the kind of hardcore Chicago one, which has come mm-hmm. into dominance more recently, but even softer versions and have, have tried to do, uh, go in a somewhat different way. And, uh, you know, h- how would you describe if you had to lump their efforts together that, you know, what are the key characteristics of these people that, that, that stand out and, and form the basis of this kind of ongoing argument about the nature of fundamental nature of capitalism? Well, I think what made them unusual is that they tried to address the largest social problems of their their era through enlightened business practices, uh, and those practices served all of their constituencies, their employees, their customers, the broader society. And the issues that they took on depended a lot on their era. Obviously, the problems of Robert Owen in uh, 1815 in Scotland are a lot different from somebody today. Um, but uh, but the motivation to try to use your business not uh, through philanthropy but through actually enlightened practices, um, I think, is what unifies them all. But it's a, it's a matter of debate as to what enlightened means. I mean, we we it's hard to steer entirely clear of of politics here. But it's uh, the and again, the University of Chicago model didn't necessarily exist at this time, uh, though it comes into clear relief by the end of the book. But we're sort of in definition, even with Robert Owen uh, in the in the early 19th century and uh, the other 19th century uh, uh, business people that you describe, they're sort of they they've come to the conclusion independently that the values that they have are not necessarily and exclusively the profit maximizing values of the Chicago school. And yet they came up with that independently. And and there, there has to be some sort of, and you, you point out that, you know, in some cases, religious, in some cases, yeah. personal, you know, origins for this independent view. Yeah. And, and I think that was one of the trickiest things that, that I had to deal with, which was to try to discover their motivation, you know, because they were swimming upstream and they were, in almost all cases, unpopular, uh, particularly with, uh, you know, with investors, but sometimes with their competitors, uh, sometimes um, uh, with their own managers. Uh, so, um, you know, why would anybody um, put themselves in a position in which um, you're going to be very, very unpopular? And, and, and they all did. And so the, their motivations had to be very strong. 
Uh, but for some reason, they all believed that there were really two purposes uh, in the business. Uh, you know, one was an economic one, you know, to make money. And they all, all the companies made money uh, while these people were running them, with the exception of one out of the two dozen that I look at. And, um, uh, and but also, in addition to just making money, they also felt that they had a, an ethical obligation or a moral obligation uh, to address the issues that were facing their various constituencies. So they made their jobs twice as hard, you know, and uh, so they, they're sort of my heroes because of that. I mean, you know, they're willing to take on the world like that shows a tremendous amount of, uh, of bravery. And in some cases, I have to admit, some, they were pretty quirky, too, a few of them. But, uh, but, but they were courageous people, morally courageous. Yeah, and again, I think it's some about ha- uh, roughly, you know, rough numbers from the sort of the pioneers as you characterize them uh, into the early uh, 20th century. You know, maybe half of them with some sort of religious origin, others with just their backgrounds or their personalities. The stories, you, 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 your book is divided into a, a couple parts. The first part is called the, up to the beginning of the 20th century, the pioneers, uh, and, and in some cases early 20th century um, that. You know Robert Owen and and uh, the original families behind Marx and Sparks, as I refer mm-hmm. to them, and the the great stories of Levi Strauss and so forth. Um, and and you know these people were really, as you say, swimming upstream because the 19th century and early 20th century capitalist environment, market environment was was brutal and unforgiving. No Chapter 11s, no ESG, no government watchdogs. It was it was. Uh, all the more incredible that these people chose to go the path that they did. I'm not discrediting or, or diminishing the achievements of, say, the post-World War II crop that you identify, mm. but the, the pre-crash crop of entrepreneurs who went down this path, uh, just tremendously brave people. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we were dealing with uh, Blake's era of dark satanic mills um, throughout the 19th century and even into the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and and business was really almost totally unregulated uh, during that period of time. Uh, so uh, anything that these people did, their competitors and investors saw, um, you know, is wasting money. Uh, you know, why should you offer, <coughs> excuse me, a healthy um, and safe working environment if your competitors aren't? Because it's just going to give your competitors uh, a, 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 com, a comparative edge, and instead of mollycoddling the, 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 the workers, you should pay out that money, you know, to your investors. And so the pressures on these people were, were were enormous because there was no expectation in society from anyone that they had to be doing this or they should be doing it because the notion of, for example, corporate social responsibility that everybody talks about today, you know, nobody did that, you know, until 1940. So. Um, uh, so they 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 were really um, uh, people who who were just driven to do the right thing, and and not just driven to do it once, but they really tried in all of their dealings and throughout their entire careers. Uh, you know, when things got rough, these people didn't back down. Uh, you know, which uh, you know is is an, another absolute source of uh, of amazement and 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 some high drama actually in in the stories. High, high drama indeed, and I particularly encourage people to to, to go through some of the older stories in the, in the pioneers section. Most of us who've gone through some level of college or graduate school work will be familiar with Robert Owen, 
Uh, but the others are mostly unfamiliar, uh, but they're, they're brand names today or were in recent memory brand names. And there's tremendous linkages to today. Uh, the Milton Hershey story, I'm a resident of Pennsylvania mm. and, and involved with some uh, nonprofit schools for underprivileged youth. And the Milton story, Milton Hershey story and the Milton Hershey Trust is as relevant today as it was 100 years ago. Um, a friend of mine runs a soap charity in the develop in the developing world. Uh, he's met Paul Pullman. So the story of William Lever and Unilever's founding is still very, very relevant. And Paul Pullman, we'll get to this later, but Paul Pullman's, uh, the recent CEO of Unilever, until recently CEO of Unilever's effort to, to, to uh, run a very large, complicated ethical business in the spirit of William Lever's is, uh, you know, also incredibly fresh. Johnson & Johnson as well. So the, these are not just tales. Um, uh, even the pioneers are not just tales from the past. They are of continuing relevance. Yeah, I, I think the, the William Lever story, you know, in particular, um, what, what is fascinating about that story is that although Lever, who was an amazing man, who um, really treated his employees both in England, but in every country in which they, they did business, including in the Belgian Congo, which he treated his employees as if they were his partners. I mean, he really cared about them and he wanted them to have not only um, good places to live and clean places to work, but he wanted them to be healthy. Uh, he wanted them to eat well. He, he, want, he wanted them to be educated. You know, and, and, you know, it, it, everything went wrong for him at the end of his life. And he lost control of his company. Uh, and it just happened literally overnight. I mean, that, that he was on top of the world. And then there was this unusual uh, uh, set of circumstances in which suddenly uh, his debts are called and he's no longer running his own ship. And he died a broken man. Um, but what is fascinating is that even though that company then merged, uh, the Lieber Brothers English company merged with um, a Dutch company to form Unilever, the, the, the memory of Lieber never died completely in the company. And this is one of the, the very few exceptions that I, that, I, that I found. And then you get a guy like Pullman coming around, um, you know, 100 years later uh, saying, that we, you know, we we lost our way a hundred years ago, and we're going to go back to what that man was attempting to do. And I, and I find that one of really one of the most fascinating stories in in the book in terms of how it, it has lasted, you know, for so long in the struggles. Because now Pullman was driven out of the company recently for basically the same reasons that Lever was driven out, uh, you know, a hundred years before that. And and so uh, you know, I, 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 I in a story like that, you you, you couldn't make it up. Well, the, the 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 tension that runs through many of these uh, accounts, and it's both for the pioneers and the golden era, and, and and I guess it may be definitional, but it's probably worth calling out in the beginning. And you state it in the very beginning, your introduction as to why you're focused on the Anglo-American model, and that may be just due to the the stories that you have, but. Some of our uh, listeners will be aware of that there are, you know, there, there's a continental European model, a stakeholder model rather than the Anglo-American pure market model. And in who counts as your pioneers and your 
uh, enlightened capitalists are generally defined as trying to make the workers' experience better. There, in later instances, it's also about environmentalism uh, and so forth. But the, the main definition of enlightened, and I'm putting words in your mouth, and, and feel free to 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 push back, is in, in regard uh, to to the workers, and that in other countries and other market context. And again, I, I have in mind specifically Germany with its mm -hmm. the way that corporations are Germany set up with uh, supervisory boards consisting of uh, labor representatives for half of the, the, the board. It's that, you know, we're, we're choosing to define or, or you're choosing to define um, entrepreneurs who treat their workers uh, exceptionally well as, as enlightened and that stands in contrast to the Chicago model where employee, employees are just a cost and, you know, you try to manage the cost and that's about it. Is that too much of a cartoonish statement of your approach or is that in its essence correct? No, I think in, in the early days, obviously, the real problems were, uh, were with the conditions of employees. Uh, but that gradually changed over time. And even William Lieber spent a lot of his time with concern for uh, for customers and also for concern for for the environment, and um, almost all of these people uh, cared about the quality of the products uh, that they were making, and uh, having uh, good relations with their uh, suppliers and their dealers. So uh, I, I think they all had a broader thing, but but I think you're absolutely right that the focus in the early days was where uh, the, the the biggest problem is where you know if if, if you're Robert Owen or you're William Lieber. And you walk into a factory, uh, you know, in the 19th century, it's appalling, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and Lieber, you know, so I mean, where are you going to start? You're going to start if you're, you're Robert Owen, getting those five and six year old kids out of the factory and into school, um, you know. But by by uh, uh, the mid part of the of the 20th century, because of the laws that were enacted here, um, you know, the factories were, you know, after World War II, were, were most of the part relatively safe. There weren't any kids in them, you know, and uh, so uh, the, the 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 focus then then, then changed, I think, to, uh, to to a broader set of uh, 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 of questions. Um, but the the difference between the two models, back to your point, between the European model and, and the Anglo-American model, is really stark. Um, the uh, I don't go into this in great detail in the book because, as you pointed out already, it's a pretty long book, and I was going to have another chapter or two uh, on uh, enlightened capitalism around the world, but that's maybe have to be another book. Uh, but, um, you know, the, from the mid uh, 1800s, um, the people in Germany and in France, um, Scandinavia, business people and economists in those countries conceived of the role of the corporation in a different way than people did who were the, the, the sons and daughters of Adam Smith. And, you know, that difference has not gone away <clears throat> over time. And it, and it leads to, a, you know, to, to some really remarkable differences. And I'll give you just one really stark one. Um, some of the, the most socially enlightened companies in Europe today are owned by trusts. And what, what happened is that the founders set up charitable trusts and they um, left the, the company in the hands of directors who were charged with uh, making sure that their values 
and that their practices continued into the future and that the company was to serve the needs of their em employees and the needs of, um, of society. And, um, and that has happened to this day. And, and, and uh, but it doesn't exist in the U.S. As a matter of fact, in the U.S., you, given the tax law today, a, um, a, a, an entrepreneur cannot leave his company to a charitable trust. So a company in America cannot be owned by a charitable trust. It can be owned by a family trust, but it cannot be owned by an independent charitable and, trust. And Hershey, so Hershey is pre, kind of grandfathered in, or is Hershey actually outside? It was, there, there were two. There were the two exceptions in the book were both happened before they changed the law. Yeah, and they were. There was, was you couldn't. Hershey could not get away with that trust today. And uh, in this other company that I mentioned, that was very small and that no one has ever heard of, um, the Alabama Cast Iron Pipe Company um, was founded about the same time as uh, as Hershey, a little bit after Hershey. No, just about the same time as Hershey. And um, he set up a trust of the same type, and that's been going in Birmingham, Alabama, and it has ha had the best record of, of worker safety in terms of the benefits to the employees, and also in particular, the best record of, of racial uh, relations. And, and they were they were fully integrated um, all through uh, the Jim Crow era from 1900 till, till today. And black workers have always been treated as equal to white in that company. And, and it's all protected in the terms of the trust by, by the founder. But you can't do it anymore. You know what I mean? We, we have some... Uh, uh, you know, we have, you know, crazy laws that back up a lot of bad practices. And uh, one, one, before we get into that, because I think there, uh, there are uh, a number of central tensions running throughout this. But one other uh, story that uh, is unknown and worth uh, calling out is, is James Lincoln and the uh, electronic uh, electric manufacturing uh, company. Yeah. Um, can you can you give kind of a precy of that story? Because that that was. Uh, uh, really quite eye-opening to to understand how an arc welding company becomes a um, uh, you know just a, a, a mini gem uh, of of corporate governance and and employee relations. Yeah, um, and it's it's a, probably one of the last places you would expect it to happen because going back to the you know you're talking about the University of Chicago School, um, James Lincoln uh, and his brother John Lincoln, who is actually the founder of the company were both diehard staunch Republicans and capitalists to the core. They fought the new deal, um, tooth and nail. Uh, and they were, uh, uh you know, uh, they, they, they sounded like Milton Friedman before Milton Friedman yet they believed, and I think it had a lot to do with their religious background that, um, businesses were places for human development. And that they had a moral responsibility to allow their workers to develop their talents uh, to the full. And that they would allow these people, they would give them the resources, not only to, um, you know, to learn and grow on the jobs, but also to uh, create capital themselves and to become owners of the firm and uh, be paid as, as much as, as, as they made a contribution to the firm. And so, you know, everybody sort of bought into the fact you know, that um, there weren't two classes in the company, the, the capitalists or the owners and managers and the workers, because everybody was in the same boat. And they, you know, they set up governance uh, structures within the organization so that the workers um, were part of every decision that was made in the company. 
Um, the workers even uh, participated, American workers, in decisions to create jobs overseas. Um, you know, and and they've never, there's never been a single time uh, in the entire history of the company, and they've been doing this now for over 100 years, in which management has vetoed the decisions that were made by a joint uh, management employee uh, uh, governance board. That's really uh, quite exceptional. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really remarkable. And and every year, they are the highest paid um, uh, industrial workers in the in, in the country year after year after year. And there's never been a layoff uh, in the company, I think, since 1920 or something like that. Um, you know, and all the all the the workers, their their, their domestic workers, um, you, know, you know, have have a, a, a guaranteed work. They don't, they may not be that they'll work full time. Um, you know, but but uh, during bad times, uh, they're able to. Uh, the company does everything they can to make sure that they're able to earn a living until you know recessions are over or, or setbacks are, are overcome. And and and, uh, and one of the, I think the readers would appreciate understanding what what many of the companies who've done who who supported that is rather than uh, uh, lay off workers, they they cut hours. They'll go from five days a week to four days a week to three days a week until the storm blows over. That's not the standard practice in modern industry, but it appears to be the standard practice in these for these companies. Yeah, uh, and and uh, Hershey did it um, with his workers during the depression, and one of the reasons why um, he became such a, a, a almost a folk hero in America during the depression was that there was no depression in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Right, everybody kept their jobs. Yeah. Right, and and it was it's a re- it was a remarkable thing, and, and the same with Lincoln Electric workers; they all kept their jobs, uh, and 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 uh, Johnson and Johnson, all the workers kept their jobs. Uh, and uh, uh, this took a tremendous amount of planning uh, on the part of the uh, managers, and, and it really points out how, uh, when you see what they had to do in terms of, of how they structure work, uh, how they structure governance, how they structure pay, um, you can see that that they've all taken on uh, a really hard task. It's a hell of a lot easier just to lay people off, right, uh, than it is to figure out ways to, to keep them employed. Well, let me let me let's wrap up that that pioneer section. And again, its relevance to this day is 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 quite clear. I'm just going to mention all of the brand names today that are are discussed here that m- many people know: J.C. Penney, Unilever, Hershey, uh, in England, John Lewis and Marks and Spencer, uh, and then a huge American corporation, J and J, as well as now private but well-known brand Levi Strauss. So, if you think that these are just small do-gooders, as it were, that didn't have some legacy to the current day. That's uh, not the case. They, they're, you know, the great kind of tragedy of the book is that, as you point out, that the pioneers' efforts generally don't make it past the second or third generation. There are a few exceptions, as you've highlighted, but those brands and those businesses are still around today, in part because of the the successful uh, efforts of those those uh, those pioneers. Uh, in the the world changes around the depression, regulations, markets. Again, in the Anglo-American model, certainly in my line of business, I'm in the public equity business. Um, you know, there's pre pre-crash and post-crash. Actually, I would say pre, and you mentioned 1940. There's pre 1933 and 1934 and 1940. Those are the big dates for regulating uh, public uh, companies, and post 1933, 34, and 1940. And a lot of the uh, you know the companies in the second half of your book are, are modern ones that that we recognize, and they have been operating under uh, uh, both with some new tools because. Some of this, you know, better corporate governance, more organized labor relations, they become more 
visible, but also greater pressures. The daily relentless pressure of the stock market is just uh, is brutal. Mm-hmm. And you know, you these are well known uh, uh, names, and and I, I like the story in particular of John Whitehead, which you point out. You know. <laughs> Maybe you'll say it, not I won't, because it's a little too close for me. I, I believe you you may refer to uh, either the the firm or the 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 industry as among the most vilified in modern business. I won't say it, but the you know the person who created that firm for what it is today was not what you would expect the founding story of said firm to be. And I'm going to let you name the story, name the firm rather than me, so I don't get into trouble. Yeah, well, well, you're talking about Goldman Sachs, and um, you know, and uh, really, while they were a privately held firm, while they were basically a partnership, a real partnership, um, they they were governed by a, a code of ethics that came, that came from you know the founders, uh, you know, who um, were obviously moral men, and they did dealings with people with a shake of a hand and they understood that they were always, uh, you know, putting the interest of their, uh, their clients and their customers before their self-interest and, and their, their, their customers knew that and trusted them. And, and therefore the company grew. And, uh, when it passed from uh, family ownership, uh, you know, to professional managers, they were very lucky. The first two professional managers, um, had worked with the founders and they kept those values uh, very much alive uh, in the, uh, in the company. And, um, and John Whitehead, uh, when he retired uh, from just before the company went, went public, when he retired, I think everybody would have said that uh, the model for integrity on wall street was, um, was Goldman. And, uh, and, and indeed, everything that was ever written about the company up to that point and, and everything was ever written about Whitehead throughout his entire life, uh, you know, was these people were, you know, exactly what you want from people who are running your money. You know, you, this is the kind of people you're going to trust your money with. And, and that, that was all lost, um, you know, so very quickly, you know, after Whitehead left. Uh, there were a couple of people who, you know, he, who he had nurtured and he had mentored who were there. And tried to fight the good fight for a while, but you know, eventually they eventually lost out. And uh, it's it's a sad it's a sad story. It's the only financial story that's on there, other than 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 a very early one um, uh, talking about Fugger. Um, but um, um, uh, you know, it 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 showed that it was possible in that industry, you know, really to uh, to be ethical and um, in the in the way. Um, he treated his customers and the way he treated his partners and, and his employees uh, was it, was it was truly remarkable. And it stands out. Uh, it's just because, as you said, the industry's fallen fairly far since. I, I don't know that the industry, maybe the industry hasn't fallen fairly far, but the it doesn't appear that there are as many standouts as there used to be in that industry. Um, and it's it's just a, a sad state. First, and I think that gets to what will will be the kind of the core of the discussion as to the tensions as to why these individual efforts. Um, while they keep recurring, don't become systematic, or at least have not yet. One other great story, and he passed away just as your book was going to press, is Herb Kelleher. Um, and, uh, um, you know, really tough business, really tough business, and yet uh, managed somehow to create 
a brand that everyone likes and is content with, even though it's a it's a it's a, a business that's hard to please everyone. Yeah. Oh well, no, he's he's a remarkable man, and um, that they have been able to um, maintain uh, his values to sustain them. Uh, you know, is is uh, really something given that industry because that is an industry. You know the cutthroat competition, and if you make a slight mistake, you're out of business. I mean, we—I don't know if you, if you were as old as me. Uh, you remember Pan Am and TWA? Sure, and sure, Pan absolutely. And, yeah. and I mean, you know, and 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 a hundred others like them that didn't last. You know, yeah. and, and and for and, and the few that for a while, United was run uh, uh, in a very admirable way, but they couldn't keep it up. Um, and um, but but they've been able to do it. Uh, the question at um, at Southwest now is that they they've had only um, one real succession of leadership in terms of the CEO, and the current CEO is getting ready. He's approaching retirement age, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens because um, their industry has changed uh, greatly, and they've grown. And um, uh, growth has been a problem because it, it's a lot easier in a small business to um, Treat all your, uh, your your stakeholders well than it is in a much larger business in which you don't know any of them. You don't have you don't have any face to face contact with your employees or with your customers or with your suppliers or your dealers or anybody else. You know, and that face to face contact makes a big difference. And that's what they sort of had. Everybody, you know, at Southwest knew everybody else. And um, now that they're losing that, it's going to be a um, uh, it's going to be a real challenge. Uh, I, I think to, to hold on to it, and I'm, I'm watching that one very. I'm watching that one very closely because um, uh, I would like to be proved wrong with that one. Uh, and we, I, I'm a. My father was a pilot, and I'm very, very active um, aviation person, and so I, I'm following that one uh, as well. Um, because again, it's an unusual, uh, given their business model is different than all the other business models, uh, the three big legacy carriers, the, and we'll see what, how long that lasts it, it, in the middle of the 20th century, late 20th century, there is a shift from, you know, treating everyone with respect, but a real definition uh, of that in terms of how you treat your employees to adding to that, the environmental concerns. You have, uh, Anita Roddick, uh, Toms of Maine, and then, uh, somewhat of a late motif, but, uh, and, and a little bit more quixotic, uh, Ben and Jerry, uh, of Ben and Jerry's ice cream and their, their efforts to incorporate not only labor relations, but, but frankly, just less damage to the, uh, to the planet. And that's <laughs> no easier than getting the labor relations, right? It's been very, very hard to do that. Yeah. I mean, you can see that, um, a lot of companies have promised a lot in terms of the environment. And, you know, even in terms of things like um, fair trade, you know, uh, sourcing of raw materials in the developing world. And, you know, uh, uh, Starbucks, oh, I remember it must have been 10 years ago, said they were committed to uh, to fair trade and, and, and all. And they haven't been able to get there still, you know, and, and they were committed to uh, uh you know, no, you know, zero amount of waste and, and getting rid of all the plastic out of what they're doing and all the rest of it. And they haven't been able to get there. Uh, they've gotten closer and some of them have gotten closer, but it's, but it's been a real, uh, it's a real uphill battle. It's easy to, um, you know, to swap out uh, your um, uh, 
old lights for um, LEDs and to do a lot of <clears throat> other things of that nature, you know, to get rid of plastic bags uh, and using recyclable bags uh, or, uh, or swapping um, plastic bags for paper bags. And, and those things are pretty easy to do. They're worthwhile doing. Um, but there are a lot of, you know, getting to that next level, there are very few companies who've been able to do it. And oddly, um, the company that was making the best uh, run at it was um, um, uh, Unilever. And, uh, under and Paul Pullman. Up, under, under Pullman. Yeah. And, uh, I believe, did he not say that, you know, we, we should aspire to be something other than a branded litter company, you know, all the, all the shampoo bottles and so forth that we need to do better than that. I'm not sure if that was him or someone, but I associate that comment with him. Yeah. I don't think he said that, but that's what he meant. Mm -hmm. All right. And, and he certainly acted that way as if that were what he wanted to do. And he set out a 10 year plan to do it. And he was making progress in that direction, but the, uh, his investors got tired you know, that um, they were not making quite as much money as their competitors. They were making money. They never lost money, right? But they weren't making enough. And, um, and that's really the hard problem in uh, publicly traded companies. Uh, as um, Pullman started feeling pressure to build up those short-term profits, and he had to build it up in ways that were inimical to meeting the long-term uh, environmental goals that he had set. And the same thing, you know, we, we got with... Um, um, uh, John Mackey, you know, at, at Whole Foods. Foods. Yeah. I mean that, uh, that he was moving in the right direction. He never got to where he wanted to go either. And, um, but, uh, every time he, uh, came back with a quarter that wasn't quite as profitable as Safeways, uh, uh, the, he got trouble from the investors and it looked like he was going to have to sell the company. It looked like there could have been a hostile takeover. Um, they could have, they were going to dump him. And he was forced to go into this uh, very, very quick uh, marriage with uh, Amazon. And, and Amazon is not exactly um, a paragon of virtue. And so um, it's going to be you know, very hard for him to achieve his goals inside Amazon. Uh, you know, Anita Roddick was trying to, to um, uh, achieve her goals uh, inside L'Oreal, which is a big company, uh, global corporation that she'd sold out to. Uh, who didn't care at all about the environmental and health issues that, that Anita cared about. And, but she thought she was going to be able to change them. Uh, she didn't do it. She unfortunately died suddenly in, 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 you know, in, the prime of her, in the prime of her life. She never had a chance to do it. But I think the chances of, of her having succeeded probably were not very good. L'Oreal basically just gave up on the business and, and recently sold it. Uh, so it's really, really hard um, you know, to get all the way to being an environmentally clean, uh, to getting to be an environmentally clean company, particularly if you also want to be treating your, your employees, employees yeah. as well at the same time. And, right. and, and that's what she wanted to do. And that's what Paul Pullman wanted to do. So let's, let's, you know, we, we saw the kind of modern attempts. There were the 19th century attempts. You know, the, the point of your book, sadly, is that they looking for the markers of success, but you keep on running up against, uh, uh, in the second generation or towards the end of the first generation, uh, the markers, it's, it's very hard to sustain what the founder creates. I, I would also argue, although I don't know that you make this point as strongly, that uh, small scale, these, you know, I think one of the reasons why the um, 
uh, I forget the name, the James Lincoln's, the arc, arc yeah. welding business Lincoln, uh, Lincoln yeah. and the Birmingham electric, uh, the Birmingham business, the pipe business uh, can continue on is because they've remained small, relatively small uh, compared to these others. But so you have size, you have uh, the passing of the founders, uh, the relentless pressure from peers who don't care about these things. Mm-hmm. But the, this is a tale. I know you end on a high note, and I want to make sure that we give you plenty of time to make those points. But as you point out, it is, you know these are cautionary tales. They rarely, you know, out of the you said there are twenty four total stories. You know, uh, only a handful of them really have survived past uh, a couple generations to continue their manner of business. The rest just succumb. And that raises the big question, which is kind of on every page of your book about this Mm. inherent tension between our market-based system, for better or for worse, and these people who want to to do a little bit better vis-a-vis their employees or or the environment. And yet, after a while, they just come up short. And that that must be, you know, a, a core frustration for you as you were doing this research and writing this. Oh, it's it's been a core frustration for me. I'm an old guy, all right? And um, uh, the first book I wrote about uh, this sort of thing um, was in 1971. And I talked about some good companies that were doing interesting things uh, for their employees. And um, uh, I started teaching uh, a year later, two years later. And I, I used a case that I had had that was only two years old about a company that was doing remarkable things uh, uh, for their for their employees and also for the environment as well. And my some of my MBA students looked into it and they said, well, Professor O'Toole, we checked into it and they're not doing it anymore. And I said, it's only been two years and they're not doing it anymore. And and so, you know, and, and every damn time I've gotten a case over these years for my students, I get them all excited. When we look back, we find out that, you know, well, you know, that was then. And so, uh, you know, it has been a terribly frustrating thing for me. Uh, and I've tried not to get discouraged. I try not to discourage uh, my my students because you know I want them to go out and 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 to do the right things. And I honestly believe that that it can be done. Uh, but to sort of get to the the bottom line of the book, um, where I am particularly pessimistic is the ability to do it in large publicly traded corporations. I think that um, there are very few exceptions uh, there. It's really hard to do it there, but. In privately held companies, family-owned companies, employee-owned companies, um, uh, or, or the European model in which they're owned by a, um, a foundation, um, or um, now the hopeful thing is with these so-called benefit companies, the, the legal um, process or structure by which uh, a company can protect itself uh, from uh, pressures of, uh, of the owners. Uh, to maximize short-term profits. And if you're doing something for society, um, the managers and the board can resist those, those pressures and not, and not be sued. And so the, the, that's a very, very promising way. And, and that there are 7,000 of these companies that have been- And they're all the small, presumably. They're all, all relatively small. small. Yeah. All very small. So all very I, I, I want to engage you on what, uh, in my experience, I'm not uh, I'm a historian, but I work in the capital markets. I work with publicly traded companies, large publicly traded companies. And I, I've come to a similar but parallel conclusion, though I haven't thought it through as much as you. But I I came across the work of Lewis Kelso, who you mentioned in passing, mm-hmm. uh, and um, 
uh, not with the negative element of the ESOP. That is, ESOPs are complicated debt finance structures that haven't yeah. worked out really well. But the basic notion of employee ownership, so that we're all pulling in the same direction, uh, is me, we being uh, shareholders, management, and employees, to me is, is very, very appealing. And I, I have raised the issue, and I, it seems to be a case in your book that in those instances in which employees have a stake in the business, whether it's through a a debt financed ESOP or just because mm-hmm. the, the uh, management provides uh, shares to the company that it works out better for a while. It, it still goes south at the end, but it's it works out better for a while. And I, I have often asked the companies that I engage with, the Verizons of this world and the Coca-Colas of this world, why more of their employees don't own shares, collect the dividends. And I often get a blank stare and they say, the employees aren't interested in shares. Uh, they would sell them if they got them. And uh, particularly after Enron, it's your, you face a lot of risks if you try to give employees your shares to begin with. Um, and that it's it strikes them as an odd, odd idea. Now, in Silicon Valley, it's a less of an odd idea. But in the old economy, it's still a very odd idea that employees would own shares of the companies for large corporations. And that bothers me. And it, it's clear that in your case studies for the small and mid-sized companies, it's actually been a pretty, at least initially for the first generation or two, it's been pretty helpful when companies have employees have a stake in the business. Is that, am I overstating yeah, the yeah, case? I think, yeah, I, I think so. And, and and we do have one big one that we've already mentioned in which employees have a very large share and, and that's Southwest. Um, uh, they, the, the employees were, were, um, given big shares right at the very beginning and allowed to buy in and uh, they own a very large block of the company and they tend not to sell at least not while they are uh, not while they're working for the company and and you need the process of education and you get get them to understand why not to sell and the problem is why they sell is that they see the top management top management gets um Stock options. In the minute they those op- options can be exercised, they exercise them. So they don't hold the stock themselves. They sell it the minute that the, the, you know that the, 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 the options are, are theirs. You know they're clear, and so you know they're, they're, uh, you know except for the founders who have very very large original shares, you know in these companies, top managers in, in, in these companies, you know aren't really shareholders. You know they have got a lot of shares, but they're stock options. This is and one of the reasons why I've I've been encouraging and encouraged by a shift. And I, I operate in the dividend world. And if the company's shares pay a dividend, there's less reason to sell it right away. And dividend-paying companies tend to use restricted shares rather than options, where it's the technology companies that use options because their shares don't have dividends. Uh, this is still a very difficult proposition. It's marginally easier if the company pays a dividend. The employees can see a cash stream associated with their yeah. share ownership and the managers tend to get restricted stock units as opposed to options they don't uh, they, they keep them because they get the dividends even the managers but I, I grant you again the uh, your, your basic point that the executive suites behavior does not encourage employees to behave uh, in terms of you know long-term ownership of the company when the the senior executives themselves don't behave that way yep yep right. so well, it, it it is um, a tale of many efforts and few successes. Nevertheless, nevertheless, you end on an optimistic note, 
pointing out uh, five or six different characteristics, emerging characteristics. So we've, we could say we have the 19th century phase that goes up to 1940, really, 1933, 34, 40. We have the post-war phase, the post-depression uh, you know, post, uh, and World War II phase of companies that you describe. And I don't know if we're at a, a turning point or not, but you do identify these reasons to be cautiously optimistic about uh, trends that you think might be leading in, in a, a, a more stewardship uh, direction. And I, that was that was good to end on, frankly. Uh, how, how would you, you know, do you want to uh, summarize some of those developments? Well, you know, I would say that, that there are more people having conversations like the one we've, we've just been having. And there are more CEOs who are saying the things, the right things. Okay. And they are even some of them are having consortia of, of other CEOs, uh, you know, Don Mackey's um, conscious capitalism movement, you know, being, um, you know, one of, of several examples of that, uh, of that nature. Um, business schools now are uh, teaching um, social entrepreneurship, offering degrees in social entrepreneurship. So they're stressing this again. And there is some, uh, some investor groups, uh, CalPERS, uh, the Norwegian Sovereign Fund, um, uh, Ford Foundation, uh, that come to mind that are now seriously talking about um, investing in ways that they encourage companies that are doing the right thing. And they're not just trying to maximize short-term uh, benefits uh, you know, for their funds. And so, you know, all those things uh, uh, taken together – you know, plus the existence of these, uh, which I haven't mentioned, the um, B corporations, um, which is a certification, about 3,500 companies have been certified that they're really doing all the things that the enlightened capitalists did. And they're getting a real certification for that. These are all small companies, too. But the more companies are going after that certification and a couple of companies that are uh, owned, uh, that are divisions of major uh, publicly traded companies uh, are getting B certified. For example, the Ben and Jerry division of uh, um, Unilever. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. those things are, are promising. So you know, I haven't given up. Uh, you know, like I said, I've been looking at this stuff, you know, for nearly fifty years, uh, and uh, I try. I've been remained optimistic throughout the whole time. And um, you know, young people. You know, I, I must say that in my business school class, the last ones that I did at USC, you know, there was a, a core. Uh, it wasn't the majority of business school students, but there was a, a, a significant minority of those students who really seemed committed, you know, to wanted to behave virtuously, you know, in their in their careers. And you and, and you uh, think and they think and you based on your fifty year experience that it can be done with within the basic market framework. I mean, your book your book shows that it can be, but that. Uh, you know, uh, in the current political environment, we have a presidential election, highly politicized election, highly politicized. All they all are a highly ideologically charged uh, political environment currently in an election, presidential election coming up, in which people are, have been, are, and will be calling into question the basic system, not just the details of the system. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, I'm trying. I, I honestly have tried not to talk about you know, politics in this, that, that political thing, I, I, you know, I don't, nobody knows where that's going to go. All right. You know, that's there are a lot of wild cards and that is a wild card. And I, and I admit that it does change a lot of things. Um, but I do think that what you're seeing with the social entrepreneurship movement 
and with the be certified uh, company movement, with the benefit company movement, is a lot of young people are, who would have gone to work, you know, for General Electric are now saying, no, I'm going to start a small business. And what we're going to do is it's going to be employee owned, you know, or, or significantly employee owned. And, and we're going to be uh, do the best that we can with the environment. You know, we may not grow and we may not get rich, you know, but we're going to we're going to lead good lives. Uh, you know, we're going to be rich enough. Uh, and uh, we'll see if they can keep that up throughout their lives. I, I don't know if they can or if they will, uh, but there's certainly a lot more of them talking about that today than, than ever. Well, I, I really hope that that uh, indeed works out the case. I, I am as a historian, as uh, frustrated as I am with what I call, I spend a lot of my time beating up the Chicago model, but I, I don't mm-hmm. want to uh, throw the system out. I think the system is, to, to quote, uh, paraphrase Churchill, is the worst possible system except for all of the others. And it is indeed these incremental efforts over time that make it uh, workable. And uh, unlike other state-directed systems, uh, the market system and capitalism has been um, ev- uh, open to improvement and suggestion and alternatives, which your book narrates that really, really well. So, uh uh, you know, I think your your budding students and and uh, the trends that you call out at the uh, final uh, part of your book are are encouraging for all of us. I agree with you 100% on your sentiment. The book is uh, The Enlightened Capitalist, Cautionary Tales of Business Pioneers Who Tried to Do Well by Doing Good. The author is James O'Toole. Thank you, uh, Jim, for speaking with us. Uh, The book is uh, just out from Harper Business. I do encourage everyone to uh, uh, get a copy. It is uh, the, the, the biographies of these individuals who tried to make a difference will uh, not only enlighten, but also encourage uh, people in business. Uh, I, I certainly felt that way. So, uh, Jim, thank you so much for uh, speaking uh, with me today. Thank you.